out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American rock musician, songwriter, author and record producer. It is the one and only Frank Sassage, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Original member of the American band Blue Ash, who've been incredibly prolific and also has been in various other combos, including the Dead Boys and also uh, worked with Stiff Baters, but has recently written a book about his life, which is absolutely brilliant. It came out at the end of 2023, titled Not That Way Anymore. And also in 2015, he wrote another autobiography titled Circumstantial Evidence, which are both available from all good bookshops and also online. So, um, But we're going to talk about all that stuff in this interview. So after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, which basically was a lot about our health, I know, fascinating stuff. We get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Frank, it's over to you. Sure. Um, uh, Jim Kenzer and myself, we started Blue Ash in Youngstown, Ohio in 1969. Our first uh, run with the band was 69 through 79, and we were had two albums out. We were on Mercury Records, signed by Paul Nelson, who signed the New York Dolls at the same time. And then we were on Playboy Records and we had regional hits and everything, but never, never uh, kind of broke out or anything. Then the British group, The Records, in 1979, they uh, covered one of our songs, Abracadabra, Have You Seen Her? And it was on their first hit album. They had a top 40 hit album here in in the United States. So that got Blue Ash around a lot more. Uh, Michael Monroe's recorded some of my songs. I've had about 30 songs recorded by different people. The latest was uh, Billy Joe Armstrong a couple of years ago with Not That Way Anymore on his No um, Fun Mondays uh, album that he put out during COVID. Then in 79, I started playing with Steve Baders, who was a friend of mine from my teenage years. And I did his solo albums on Bomp with him, the Disconnected album. And I toured with the Dead Boys and Steve for three years till 1981. And I was in a band called Club Wow from 81 to 85 with Jimmy Zero from the um, Dead Boys. And it was a, a really, really good band. And they've just put out reissues of that uh, everywhere now on Zero Hour Records out of Australia. And there's going to be an LP on that coming up. From um, 85 to 90, I managed a band called The Infidels. And uh, they they had a big cult following and are still around and get together and do things. Uh, three of the guys are in a band with me right now called the Deadbeat Poets. And uh, we've had like eight albums out. And I quit the music business from 1990 to 2003 uh, to raise my son and got a regular job and didn't have any, didn't even pick up a guitar for 13 years. And in 2003, we started doing Blue Ash reunions and Deadbeat Poets, about eight albums out since then. So I've been touring the world since then. Wrote a couple of books, wrote um, Circumstantial Evidence in 2015, and Not That Way Anymore. It's just come out at Halloween this last year. Yes. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> that's, quite, that's quite some career, because you've really straddled decades, musical trends, musical fads, people coming, going. I mean, that's quite an amazing CV you've got here, isn't it? I mean, you've gone, you've gone through the kind of latter part of the 60s into the sort of 70s world and, and navigated those kind of massive moments that changed i suppose you know you were there to see the kind of the the world of the beatles the stones the who jefferson airplane you know jimi hendrix the doors so how how was your musical world shaped at that point 
Um, well, I first started to want to be in a band in, in, when the Beatles played on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964, February 9th. And that's all I wanted to do. So I got a guitar and got a harmonica and uh, started with my neighborhood friends playing. We started our first band in 65. And, um, we, you know, we were pretty good. Did a lot of cover songs and everything. But I started writing songs right away, too. And then um, uh, I was did different cover bands, and we played in a band called Mother Goose, which Steve Bader's later played in. I was in that in 1968. And we played a residency at a, in uh, um, uh, Geneva on the Lake, Ohio, which is like a, they have summer campers go there and they stay for a week. It's kind of like the Butlin camps in, in, in Britain, you know. Excellent. And we would get a residency at the teenage place that we got really popular, started getting really good. I formed Blue Ash right after that to do original original uh, songs. Yes. So that's how I made it through the 60s. But I saw a lot of bands in the 60s. I saw a Jeff Beck group. I saw The, the Doors, The Who, everybody. The sounds a lot of great people around here. So I saw a lot of the, the classic people. Never saw The Beatles, though. I wish I would have. Uh, my first concert was Bob Dylan in 1965 on his first electric tour when I was 14 years old. So that was pretty cool. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And how did you sort of navigate that interesting period of sort of going from, you know, pop rock to psychedelia? What was what was that journey like for you at that point with the kind of introduction of people like Tim Leary and then, you know, Jimi Hendrix experience with Are You Stoned? Was that, was that something that you just rode that wave? Yeah, it was. We were doing the pop things and everything. Everybody's doing a lot in Ohio, a lot of garage kind of sounding things, which which was famous around here. The human beings had nobody but me, which was a great hit around here. There were a lot of bands like that that did really good around here. But um, we started writing songs and the big influence on me in the psychedelic era was Hendrix and Pink Floyd, the first Pink Floyd album. Uh, uh, that was it. I mean, that was it just blew me away. And some of the new Blue Ash things that we've been recording in the last year or so, there's a lot of like early Pink Floyd uh, influences in there, which is kind of cool. Yes. So, yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'll be really anxious to hear what people think of this because it's coming off really good. Yeah. Interesting mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, because, I mean, it is quite intriguing sort of having done so many of these interviews, how musicians cope with those different changes. And obviously Blue Ash came along in the sort of late sixties, but it was kind of the early seventies when the first album came out. Did you mm-hmm. find yourself struggling to know where you fitted into the kind of musical landscape at this point? Because obviously so much had changed in such a short period of time with the, the breakup of the, the Beatles, but then also the death of so many iconic members of the of the 60s. And then you suddenly had all these new kids on the block, like, you know, David Bowie coming along in 72, then I suppose Black Sabbath as well, and, and sort of a sort of a change in kind of musical trends, really. Well, when we started Blue Ash, we, we did half original songs and half covers to begin with. But when we started, it was already starting heavy metal, like you were saying, Blue Ash and singer songwriters, which we didn't like any of that stuff at, at all. And we really wanted to do the, the the kind of music we did when we were kids listening to it. And we were still kids then, 18, starting the band. But like when we were, you know, 13 and 14 with the Kinks, the Who, um, it, it, that kind of thing, the Beatles and Stones. So half the covers we did were like the Hollies and, and bands from that era, you know, and, and the Who and, and the Kinks. So and we started doing our own songs, spreading them in. Yes. We kind of didn't fit in anywhere. But the thing that got us by with people is we had a really, really good stage show. 
we were really exciting live and we flew around and jumped around. It, it was really a, a, an exciting thing. So people liked us doing that. And the first thing we did, did that got us really popular in Youngstown is in Northeastern Ohio is we did um, Tommy from The Who. Segway each song together, did the whole thing. It, one fell swoop there. And people did a big concert with Glass Harp and Steve Bader. Steve Bader's was on his show too. And people just loved it. It was one of our finest moments. And so we got really popular. So people would listen to whatever we did then. Yes. So we kind absolutely. of out in that. And did you find writing original material, did that come quite easily or naturally to you at the, at that time? Yeah, it, it came pretty naturally. I started writing really when I was 14 or so. And all of a sudden, I'll, I was right by the time I was 15 or 16, the songs weren't bad. They started to sound pretty good because I'd write a lot of them. And they always say, you know, I have to write, you know, 200 before you write your first best song, throw away all the bad ones. But uh, yeah, I just started to naturally go into it. And then I um, hooked up with Bill Bartlett, who was a, a good songwriter. And he I knew had known him since we were boys, but he lived over in Ohio and um, he was writing songs. And when our first guitar player quit, we got Bill in the band. And he, he and I started writing together and, and it just really clicked right from the start. Right. Was there a kind of a natural energy or or chemistry between the two of you at that stage? Yeah, yeah it was just natural. It, it, we just hit it off right away and, and just uh, started writing. It was amazing. He was an amazing guitar player. He passed away in 2009 after we'd done some Blue Ash reunion things. and everything. But he was an amazing guitar player, but a great songwriter, great guy. So I miss yes. him a lot. He was a great, great writer. I would imagine, you know, these things don't come along that many times, do they, in a lifetime? So it is pretty pretty stunning at that point. And did you, I mean, when you, before signing to Mercury, you were on the production contract with Peppermint Productions. Who were, who were Peppermint Productions? Peppermint Productions is still a going concern. Um, they, they do all kind of recordings at the studio, and they've won Grammys for... Um, polka and all this other stuff they do there with these ethnic sounds but they're still going and they've started the label now uh, up again peppermint productions and they're going to be releasing a lot of the old uh blue ash things that have have not been released yet there were still 200 and some um um demos and things in the can that we never released there so those will be coming out uh, they came out in two different waves in 2004 uh, not lame records put out a two cd set of four albums worth of that stuff called around again and then in 2016 um you were the cosmos in spain put out a, uh, a double gatefold lp called hearts and arrows with more songs on it but peppermint's already put out a comp with a, a blue ash song called it's all in your mind this was always one of my favorite ones we've ever written we thought it was lost but it's on that but this new one that'll come out. It'll have um, uh, Jaisal Jane on it. It's in the um, uh, Daisy Jones and the Six series. It's in episode one. Speaking of which, uh, uh, David, that's on tonight, the Emmy Awards. And it's uh, that's the big television awards for America. And it's up for um, nine Emmy Awards, and uh, including Best Actor and Best Actress. Uh, the actress is um, Riley Keough, who's Elvis Presley's granddaughter, Lisa Marie's daughter. And the star of the show is Sam Claflin, who was uh, played Oswald Mosley in Peaky Blinders. Yes, <laughs> he's, the he's the rock star. So they're all up for awards tonight, and I'm just I'm just hoping they they do a lot because that'll help uh, 
sales with they'll put it out on a, a DVD soon. But all of 2023, it was one of the number one uh, series in all the world. For, uh, well, I, I sort of, I, I sort of, unusually, I don't watch these um, kind of programs but because someone said recommended it and and I thought well initially someone sold it and said oh it's a bit like you know the Fleetwood Mac story and I thought well I've, I've watched the Fleetwood Mac story I don't want to watch a sort of a, a story about a pretend Fleetwood Mac band but then when I started watching I realized it was that wasn't the best description to sell me and I was absolutely hooked on it and also Sam Cleflin uh, comes from Norwich in the UK which, which is where I'm sitting now so the, the, his childhood home is in East Anglia and the Norwich area. So, um, yes, his, his, bizarrely, his dad used to be the, I think he was the finance manager or person at Future Radio in Norwich for um, quite a few years. So there's quite an interesting connection. Connection. Yes, there is quite a connection with Sam, but he's obviously become quite the actor. And then I saw the film, and then I saw the series, and was absolutely hooked by it because I thought they were all stunning. Did you know that you had a Blue Ash song in the series at that stage? Uh, yes, when we heard about the series, what happened was I I signed a contract, Peppermint Productions, and I signed a contract with uh, Reminder Records out of New York to get some of the old Blue Ash stuff. The guy got a hold of me, Jeremy Thompson. He goes, I can place, um, you know, old music in, in TV and, and movies. And so we signed a one-year contract. Give me a, okay, fine, that'd be cool. So one, almost when the year was up, he goes, I got the song. I got it placed in, in uh, uh, Daisy Jones in the sixth. He goes, in the first uh, episode, when Daisy starts daydreaming to become a rock star and she's writing in her diary, and then, and then it shows there's a segue to um, the Dunn Brothers, who was uh, Sam Claflin's band, uh, playing in Pittsburgh in 1970. So that's where our song comes in for about 30 seconds from that, when she's writing in her diary with a bomb, bomb, big drum beat, and it shows them going on stage to play the, their first gig in Pittsburgh, which was great because Blue Ash would play in Pittsburgh at that time. So whoever did the music and put it together for the, the show really knew their stuff about actually getting the right kind of music and the right kind of era, you know, so it was, and the right time too, even in Pittsburgh where we play that. So it was kind of like a, a real cool uh, kismet kind of thing, you know. That's amazing. You must have been so chuffed with that. I would imagine that. Yeah. So we were all excited and it. it's, it's been really, really cool. And it's just been fun. We got good money for it and everything too. So it was, it was great, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yes, it must. It, well, it's. I love those stories. They're sort of they're warming, aren't they? In this day and age, you just oh, you need some. Yeah. You need yeah. some happy times. So as the seventies progressed, you know, obviously Mercury Records. You did that first album. Then you were signed to was it Playboy Records in sort of seventy seven. How did that relationship come come together? Well, we 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 did really good at Mercury, and the guys at A and R loved us. Paul Nelson, Bud Scott, and the rest of them. But they didn't really know what to do with us. So they gave us one more single, a third single, to try to um, get a hit. Because we had to sell 25,000 copies to get a second album. But we only sold like 19,000. So they were going to give us one more chance because it just wasn't hooking commercially. But Dick Clark even tried to help us out. He played our record on American Bandstand, which was great trying to help us out. But it still didn't go any good. So they let us go for lack of sales under the, you know, protests of the guys at the A&R. So a lot of labels were interested in us then. Um, Columbia was. They flew us up to New York. We played in Studio A where Dylan and Paul Simon and Simon and Garfunkel recorded. 
did a great audition for him. It fell through at the last minute. RCA, the same kind of thing. Then a fellow named Nat Weiss, who owned an Emperor Records in like 1975, 76, came to Youngstown to see us. And he was really interested in us. And that was the Beatles' um, American lawyer and a really good friend of Brian Epstein. And when the Beatles came in 1968 to kick off Apple in New York City and did the Tonight Show, Johnny Carson's show, they stayed at Nat's apartment. And that's where Paul McCartney actually hooked up with um, Linda Eastman. Anyway, Nat would tell us great stories about them. And we really wanted to go with him. And he was having some financial things at the last minute. He goes, I, I can't do it. I do it properly for you guys. He goes, so I'm not going to hold you back. So we were kind of disgusted. Then we got a chance to sign with Playboy. So we did it, you know. And we had a single out called Look at You Now. We had a single deal with them. And it did really well. A regional hit all over the South, Texas, and, and, the, and the Midwest. And they signed us up for an album. Wanted to get an album out right away and sent us to L.A. Got the album out. It did really well. It was going well. The first couple of weeks sold 54,000 copies. We were getting airplay everywhere. And Playboy Records went out of business. They just that... canned the whole They just went bankrupt. And so we were left again with nothing. So after that, I started playing with Steve Bader's in 1979. And that was the end of our business. So we had a little bit of a run of bad luck and some good luck. And it became like a cult band. But that was... The run of blue ash. That was that was the ten year the ten year relationship, really, wasn't yeah. it? And then with Stiff, how did this kind of develop? Because he was quite the character, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he. I I had known him since we were teenagers. We used to go to the teenage uh, dances in the Carousel Teen Clubs, sixty seven, and so in the uh, um, Youngstown. So I knew him from them. I knew he was quite a character. As a matter of fact, I was the first guy that ever brought him on stage in 1969 at a small art outdoor gig and uh, people went nuts over. He did his stage act and everything. He ended up getting bonked in the head with a microphone. I took him to this uh, um, hospital to get stitches. Anyway, he became kind of my replacement and a mother goose man. Then he got, went up to Cleveland and uh, started Frankenstein then with the dead boys. So when the dead boys were kind of winding down in 78 after they had their two albums, he wanted to do something different, wanted to do pop music. So he asked me to come up to Cleveland to do some demos with them. Uh, it's cold outside. And we wrote a song together the last year. And I did that with Jimmy Zero and Johnny Blitz from the Dead Boys and Stiv. And he sent, took them out to um, L.A. and uh, Greg Shaw, who owned Bonk Records, loved them and signed us up. And that's how we got with them. Right. Greg Shaw. Yep. What was Greg Shaw like from Bonk Records? Oh, he was a great guy. He's one of my favorite guys. I, uh, um, I You probably saw in the book I wrote a big uh uh, chapter on him, but he was just just the. I used to call him like a patron of the arts, and he was the most knowledgeable rock writer anybody I ever knew with rock music. I mean, he he had the minutia down pat. I mean, I think I'm bad sometimes with people, and Stib was like that too. But this guy had a hundred times the knowledge that we had, and we're no slouches. So, I mean, he you could just talk to him about everything, you know. Yes. One time I was trying to remember a band and they were a British band from the British invasion that they weren't very good. They were called the snobs and they were dressed like, um, um, like, um, uh, 18th century Brits with their wigs on and snuff. They would pretend they were doing snuff and they had a couple big songs out called the buckle shoe stomp and a few of the other ones. There's even a path. They, um, 
newsreel about him. And I couldn't remember much about him. And Greg goes, oh, I've got the record. I'll give it to you. He goes, it only sold 125 copies. <laughs> <laughs> How many copies it sold? He goes, and it's terrible, but if you want it, I'll give it to you. So we went out to his house one time with Stib, and we were watching movies or something. He In the back of his house, he had all built on it was like a library. And all it was was records. Shell's records like you're going through a library. He goes, you guys can take anything you want. He goes, except the original Sun singles. He had every Sun single, 78 and 45 in order in that collection. Amazing. So it was an incredible guy, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. So you did the album Disconnected, didn't you, at this stage yeah. in, in 70? Yeah. What was your memories of that? Because you, you write the opening song, Evil Boy, with Jimmy Zero, don't you? Yes. Uh, we, we we were supposed to go to Australia, and we, we started doing a West Coast tour with uh, the members. Uh, oh, yes. Magazine. magazine, remember them? Howard Devoto and yeah. Peru. And it was called the Erg Music War. They made a movie about it. We were in it, too. But we cut, cut out of the movie because of uh, Stiff had some kind of contractual things. He couldn't get in it or something. So anyway, we got paid for it. But did it. we did the West Coast t- tour with that. And down to Santa Monica uh, Civic Auditorium, which was the last gig of it. And then the Australian thing fell through. So Greg says, why don't we do the album? Because we were going to do the album when we came back. So we started doing Disconnected right then, the summer of 1980. So that's how we did that. And it came out uh, in December of that year. We did one last last tour with that on the East Coast. Excuse me, in uh, December in 1980, but Stiff came back over with uh, Brian James from the Dan, and Brian played with us. So it was me, Brian, um, George Cabanis, David Quentin Steinberg from the, the uh, Disconnected Band, and Stiff. And we did one last tour for a month, and then Stiff formed the Wanderers, and then the uh, uh, Lords of the New Church and stayed over in Britain. Yes, but you did you work at what any stage with Cheetah? Was it Cheetah Chrome at this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. for about the first three months of the touring. We, we we were cheetah was in the band i was the only new guy it was cheetah blitz um uh, um jimmy and, and and stiff and then on december 18th we were all at uh, keith richard's birthday party his 36th birthday party december 18th at the Ros- roxy roller disco and cheetah fell and broke his wrist so he couldn't play anymore so we had this whole tour lined up, the Whiskey A Go-Go and all that. So we got George Cabanis to be in it. And it just sort of just took off from there. He never played with Cheetah again. Though I did, uh, he came up and did once after his wrist was better. He came up at Town Hall in New York and did a couple songs with us. And then uh, that was about it. I hadn't played with him after that. No. did Were you pleased with the with the kind of the final mix and the and the sort of general sound of the album? I liked everything on the album except the song Ready Anytime because they did that when I wasn't there. And that was a, a really good pop song. And Stip put all these uh, risque lyrics in it and everything. And I just didn't like it at all. And I, I have still never forgiven him or Greg Shaw for that. <laughs> so I, when I got the, the, the thing, because I went home right before that was mixed, I had written the melody and and uh, the choruses and everything, which I thought was a great pop song. And I told Stip, just, you know, little lyrics i know you'll do it right because i had been burnt out i'd been on the road forever so i wanted to go home and just take some time off so i didn't hear it till it came out and then i thought oh my god they ruined that song but that's the only thing i didn't like about it but i laugh about it now so yes it it can be quite irritating but then immediately you form another band don't you um club wow with jimmy zero 
Yeah, uh, Skip wanted to have two bands. He wanted to have the Wanderers and wanted to have us in America. But neither the Wanderers in Britain or us wanted to do that. You can't have two bands. It was almost impossible. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, we were Rod Stewart or anything that you could do, have the faces and do it. It's almost, we just couldn't do it. So nobody wanted to do it. So uh, Jimmy Zero from the Dead Boys um, asked me to join his band in Cleveland. So I did that and played with them for three, four years. So that was a lot of fun. Yes, my God. Were you feeling burnt out at this point by the mid-80s? Yeah, pretty much. And then by the by the middle of the 80s, after Club Wild, we couldn't get signed anywhere. And we, that was a great band. We did some great, great recordings. I had a three-year-old son and everything by 1990, and I, I wanted to see him grow up. So I thought I just left the music business. And actually, Stiv died. And in the same week, one of my best friends killed himself. So I lost two of my best friends ever in the same week. So I thought, I'm just, I've had it with the music on Bernada. I got a job with an insurance company and did that for about 13 years until it uh, started coming up again and started picked up my guitar one day after 13 years, never wrote a song or even played a riff in those years. And I wrote a song, the song, The Steve Bader's Ghost Tour, which is the theme song of his movie that came out a couple of years ago. So, um, I wrote that, and then the, the, the songs just started pouring out of me. And then we formed, uh, we formed Blue Ash, and did things. And then Deadbeat Poets, we've had eight albums out, or something like that. Now. I know so we've got a lot. Of- you've had an amazing period since since your sort of back, comeback from from the sort of retirement period. Actually, did you manage to sort of avoid that? Because a lot of the people that you must have been mixing with were kind of quite serious drug users at that stage. Yeah. I- I never was. I never. I, I always stayed away from that. I, I was always proud of myself for doing that. I never had a, a problem with that. But there was there was a lot of that going on at the time. It's hard. It's hard to live with guys that do that a lot. Yes, um, I would imagine. And um, yeah. and it was kind of famous, I suppose. That there's a certain there's quite a few groups and bands, and he was just kind of um, none of them were left because they were all dead. And you think, God, that's that was a bad period for music, really, wasn't it? That kind of yeah. slightly sloppy period from the sort of seventies into the mid eighties. I I still like to drink, but I I drew the line at the drugs. I really never never did that much of stuff. It's funny you were saying how you know, I I just started a new life and got became a businessman. I actually became a district manager with an insurance company. It was funny when I first started with the insurance, we were having a meeting in a college town at a restaurant. We'd have our morning meetings for sales things. And these two kids come up to me and uh, I, I never told anybody at the company that I you know, was a rock star before <laughs> or a semi rock star. You know? And these two kids go, are you Frank Sassage? And I go, yeah, we have your autograph. And so I'll take care. And so my boss goes, what the hell was that? You know, <laughs> I said I used to play because I I said I played for the Pittsburgh Penguins, the hockey team for the hockey team for a couple of years. <laughs> he goes, I didn't. I just made up. He goes, then they didn't believe me in that. So I finally told him after I, I played in bands and people, you know, would recognize me. It was pretty funny. Yeah, amazing, amazing. <laughs> so so then, two thousand fourteen, fifteen, um, you bring you write your first book memoir. So what was the was that something that had sort of been bubbling away in the background and you thought, look, I've got to get some of these stories out? Well, it, what's funny is um, George Matzkoff, he owns um, Zero Hour Records and High Voltage Publishing in Australia, who publishes the book. He had been after me for a couple of years up until then to write a book. And I would always tell him, I don't I don't think I can do that. I, saw, I have Blue Ash and Deadbeat Poets. And I said, 
And I don't think it would be that interesting either. But he would always go on about, you got to write the book. It would be good. So in um, uh, 2015, the early part of it, I had a serious accident where, and I developed a thing called cauda equina syndrome, where my spine almost severed. I felt a sharp pain that threw me to the ground. And, and uh, they rushed me to Pittsburgh and did an emergency surgery. I was in there for five days and I had to do a lot of recuperating. So the minute I get home from the hospital, George emails me. He goes, now you have time to do this. I said, okay, all right, I'll do it. So I said, I'll try to do two or three pages. He goes, just write little stories. So I did it in about three months. And um, um, I said, um, sent it off to him. He liked it a lot and he put it out and it, it, it did really well. And the first one did well. I toured all over the world with it and sold all over the place. And then um, this year, he uh, a year ago this January, he goes, why don't you write another one? He goes, I, I'd like you to write four, five, four more books in the next five years. And I go, whoa. <laughs> I said, well, there's some, I could, you know, do what I did from 2015 to now. And then I added, and, and not that way anymore. And I added some more old stories that I, I uh, forgot about. And the next one I think I'm going to do is um, a history of uh, the bands in uh, Northeast Ohio in um, the 1960s and 70s. So I think, and I got a lot of the old guys while well, they're still around now want to well, let me interview them and stuff. I think that'll be a really interesting book. So I'll figure out what to, and, and oh, we're going to do a picture book with uh, Steve Bader's um, solo career with uh, Teresa Kariakis, who took all the pictures and took the front picture of that uh, book too, not that way anymore. And then Teresa and I are going to um, write anecdotes. Teresa lived in London with um, Stiv and Michael Monroe for a couple of years too. So she has all kind of funny stories too. So, God, that's we'll going to be fantastic. In, yeah. And we'll put in stories. That, she has tons of pictures and she's a fabulous photographer. What was her name again? Teresa Kariakis. She took the front picture of that one and the back picture of my first uh, book. And really? Then there are hers too, but she's got amazing pictures of Steve and and like I said, she lived with him and, and Michael, so it'll be a fun, fun book. Yes, there's nothing. I mean, anybody who took good photographs during that period, I suppose it's the same with any period. You just have to take them and then put them in a shoebox under your bed <laughs> for sort of probably three or four decades. And then then you just unearth them and they just look incredible, incredible stories. So with this new book, which is just coming out, 2023, 24, I mean, it's been beautiful. I really like the way it's been designed and put together. Because it's got a sort of a quality of a bit like a fanzine, a bit like a scrapbook. Whose idea was it to design it like this? That was George Maskoff's from, uh, he does the designing, does the covers and did the layout like that. I thought it was cool too. I like the kind of punk do it yourself. Uh, every, every page is different kind of type and everything. Some of them are crooked and you know, it, it, it has as a, as a cool, cool layout to it. I thought yes. that was really. Yeah. And did you find when you started to, you know, focus again on your, on your second book, did it all sort of happen relatively quickly? Yeah, it all was, I had a lot of stuff that I, had could have put in the first book and then there were a lot of things that just kept popping in my mind people kept reminding me of stories so i would i would write that down i keep a little ledger on my computer just to um just to, like a click that i click on there and and start the story i have a few ideas for the story and that's how i would do that then i yes. finish story by and it's just the amount of material that you've covered you know you've gone from people like 
you know, Kim Foley at the beginning, and then you've got your story about going to the UK and Liverpool as well, and then sort of bits with sort of different different sort of sections in your life. It's been really fascinating to sort of read through it and sort of pick up little bits and pieces. So did you, you know, do you or did you sort of have an idea of the final kind of way it was going to run or did you just kind of let it all sort of roll out? Yeah, I let it roll out. Then then George got the idea just to he'd do it at random, no, no order or anything, just each separate story. And I thought that was pretty cool because the first book was all kinds of stories, but they were in kind of a chronological order from like, you know, the early 60s to, you know, 2015. But this one worked well with that. And it's selling really good in Britain, which is cool. It, it's uh, on Amazon uh, UK and doing well on there. It's WH uh, Smith has it and uh, Brown's Books. So Barnes & Noble too, so. Barnes & Noble. Do you find, <laughs> has it has it sort of helped put your life in some sort of order, you know, and sort of some sort of clarity of being able to kind of process a lot of the things that happen to you, you know, rather than just sitting on them and having them in your mind, but actually getting it out and putting it on print. Has that been quite a useful exercise? Yeah, it has. It has been, David. It's been like a godsend. I could get all this down. And um, I've been doing a lot of things. I, I have a bunch of Facebook sites and everything, Blue Ash and Debbie Poets. And I've just been putting all the photos and albums on these things and stories and everything. So I, I have a nice little legacy for my kids and my grandkids and everything else they ever want to see the stuff or anybody else does. So it, it, I'm actually just trying to get all this stuff. I was lucky enough in my life to be around people that took pictures all the time, photos. My yes. wife is a photographer and she took thousands of photos. And then Teresa and Stiv and everybody else that and the photos from Mick Rock and people like that, just amazing stuff, Donna Santisi. And but uh, so there's a lot of lot of material out there so people can enjoy them if they want to go on my, on my Facebook site, Frank Sessage, just go into the photos and albums and you'll see thousands of things in there yes. with little stories with well, I think um, I'm having having it sort of designed in that way that you you know you or your publisher have put it together with the stories, which are really nicely sort of designed. And I you know I know I've already already said that, but I do enjoy yeah. that sort of punky fanzine way. But also, it does really sort of benefit from having such evocative pictures as well, and and sort of it does kind of sum up a period. But also with the characters that you've sort of met and work mm -hmm. with all, all sort of rubbed up against. It's been, you know, such a fascinating insight. I mean, with Jimmy Zero, I mean, was he one of the more amazing people that you've played with and worked with and been with? Yeah, he's he's such a total talent. He's he's an amazing singer, if you've ever heard the Club Wild stuff. And he's a great songwriter, but he's, he's one of my best friends ever. And he is a funny guy. He's like Bill Murray or one of the guys on Monty Python. You just you have to put him in front of a microphone. He's just so funny, you know, even funnier than Stib was. And Stib was a funny guy. But Jimmy could have been could have been famous as a comedian. That's how funny he is. He's just a, a talented guy all the way around. Yes. I mean, you know, he does he does come over as one of those classic characters. Was there any particular story in this latest book that you're you're most fond of, by the way? Was there anything particular? I mean, it's very useful for people like me looking at all those little bits about sort of the career of before Blue Ash. And then there's bits about the publishing companies and bits about various 
tools mm. and also you've got a nice little section here about peppermint productions and blue ash as well but was there anything in particular that you really enjoyed sort of writing and then sort of rereading uh, I lo love a lot of the Snoop stories. The Jimmy Zero chapter is one of my favorite. I could have I could have made ten chapters and wrote a whole book about him, but he was so funny. And one of the funniest stories I I put in there is the end of uh, end of his chapter. And my son Jake was a, a skateboarder and a hockey player and played really well. And all his friends were skateboarders and they loved the punk stuff. They loved the damned, the um, Dead Boys, the Sex Pistols, and um, uh, Ramones. They just idolized this guy. So even though I was a small part of that, Jake was always real proud of me. And I tell the story in there how uh, when Johnny Blitz came to our house and they were doing the 1987 tour, Jake was just a baby and he was staying there for a day or so. And he asked my wife, Lisa, if he could feed Jacob, you know, a bottle. So he goes, because I've got two babies at home too. He's, I'd like to feed him. So he, Lisa goes, okay. She let Blitz Let's feed him the bottle. So Jake would tell his skateboarder and, and hockey team friends all the time that one of the dead boys actually fed me a bottle. And they idolized the dead boys like me and my friends idolized the Kings and the Stones and the Who. <laughs> and that they couldn't believe these stories. So I yes. introduced Jimmy to Jake and, went to, and we did this renewal thing in, in Akron. And Jimmy was there. And I could see Jake was real timid about that being around him. And I says, come on, Jake, I'm going to introduce you to Jimmy. I said, you really like him. You guys will hit it off. Good. So I introduced him. They start talking. They're really hitting it off. So I'm sitting there during one, one of the things. Jimmy says to him, Jim, uh, Jake says to him, Jimmy, is it true that Johnny Blitz actually fit, fit, you know, fed, fed, fed me when I was a kid? And and Jimmy goes, yes, Jake. He goes, that's true. Blitz actually did that. He goes, but what your dad didn't tell you was that Blitz breastfed you. <laughs> <laughs> Jake just started laughing, and I started laughing. But that's how funny Jimmy was. He would just come up with stuff like that. Excellent, yeah. yes. Yeah. That so must have made his little... Yeah, the expression on his face must have been priceless at that stage. Yeah, it was true. And then we all, he knew he was, you know, taking the piss out of being funny. But And Jimmy really likes Jake. Every time I talk to him, he always asks about Jake and everything. So he's kind of a hermit, keeps to himself a lot in, in Cleveland. And uh, I talk to him about it uh, once a month or so. so nice. Well, and there's a lovely, another bit, another one of my favorite bits in the book is your bit on Greg Shaw as well, the, the Pope of Power Pop as well. That was yes. a, that's a really nice bit. Was that um, was that quite a, a nice kind of experience to be able to write about Greg? Oh yeah, definitely. Because it, it it was it was it was so good. He had got a hold of me in two thousand four, and they were putting out the twenty fifth reissue of Disconnected and L.A. Confidential. And he wanted me to. I had talked to him for a while, you know. He wanted me to write the liner notes because I could think of nobody else better but you to write. And I says, he goes, I'll pay you real well for it. I said, Greg, you don't have to pay me a thing. I said, that'll be a, um, uh, uh, you know, a labor of love. So we spent like six months on those voluminous uh, uh, stories and told stories back and forth. And anyway, I would talk to him almost every day. And um, I told my wife, I said, I sent an email to, to Greg. He usually answers within a half an hour. He's one of those guys that answer you right away. It's been a couple of days. And I haven't heard from him. That's really odd. And I had sent him the Snoop Bader's Ghost Tour uh, thing, the first song that I had written after I started writing songs again, because I said, I name checked you in, in the song. And all of a sudden, I, I found out Greg had died. He had, he had, uh, 
you know, he had, he had heart problems and diabetes all throughout his life. And he just passed away. And I, I just was so shocked. And so, you know, stunned. yes, he was only 55 as well of heart failure, wasn't he? Yeah. yeah. Was it so, up to I mean, that point that he had no idea? Yeah, he was. We were still talking. Off the, well, he never told me anyway if he was feeling bad. But he, he, we had been, had, we'd had great conversations. We'd get on the phone and just have, you know, these hour long conversations constantly while writing all the liner notes and getting it together, too. So it was a lot of fun doing all that. And I'm yes. glad I got before he died again, too. So, and is Susie Shaw, is she still sort of, yeah, around? she's running Bomp and they have Bomp and Alive records with Patrick Wazell. Actually, they those two were two of the ones that helped me with uh, Dead Beat Poets. Because after I st started writing songs, we did a couple of demos. I, they were the only people I still knew in the music business. So Patrick and Susie ran it. And, and Patrick says, I can't do anything with this. But I know this label. And he goes, because we don't have this kind of music. It's just not what we do. He goes, but it's fantastic. He goes, why don't you send it to this, this um, label in Japan, Vivid Sounds. They might be interested. So there I send them off a couple of demos and, and 12 le hours later, they get back to me and offer me a recording contract, which I thought was ironic because all those years, Blue Ash was trying to get signed up and had all this stuff. Just kept getting the run around. And in 12 hours on the Internet, I get a recording contract. So that's how all the Blue Ash, that uh, be Poets stuff started. And um, 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 we, you know, got to Pop Detective Records with Mark Hirschberger from that and had him put all out here. But we got the startup money was from uh, Japan. And oh, that was because fun. of Susie and, and Patrick. But I just got off the uh, phone with uh, Ray from Get Hip. And he said, uh, Susie just ordered a bunch of the books for Bump and they're going to have them uh, ready on, on Friday to sell. So Because um, they still do great mail order and everything. So I thought that was cool. That's fantastic. So So Get Hip... <laughs> God, I've done an interview with who? Who's the people who run Get Hip? Get Hip is run by a guy named Greg Costelich, and he was a guitar player in a band called The Cynics, who are a really well-known um, garage band from the '80s. Also, they tour all over Europe and play everywhere, and they still do stuff and get back together. But Get Hip is the number one vinyl dis distributor in the United States. Yes. They do. They, they all they do is distribute vinyl they have some cds but it's almost all vinyl and they have a store down there and a whole warehouse huge mail order and uh it's it's fantastic we, they do shows down there they bring people like the flesh tones in and stuff and have shows and everything so they, they have a little theater in, in the building and everything else that's so kind of cool yes i think it was with it was it was greg whoever whose partner is the one who runs get hit uh, uh, Barbara, Barbara, but who's is she married right. to? She's married to Greg. Yeah, she's married. Right. So I've done into dear old Greg actually about his kind of interest in life in the cynics, which is quite amazing. So yeah, yeah. so so your book is going to get distributed by Get Hip as well. Oh yeah, they've already got them. They he I I signed about two hundred of them for him. <laughs> he see uh, he always likes to sign, have the autographed copies of Blue Ash, and they still have all the Blue Ash records, and they got that uh, Blue Ash and Colored Vinyl came out too. So That's they've got fantastic. that. Fantastic. Yeah. So so this coming spring summer, Frank, what have you got lined up, sort of date wise? Well, uh, in I think around March or so. Since the, the weather's been crappy here, I'm glad I'm not out now. I was going to go out at this time, but I'm glad I didn't. 
It's really, they're having an election today in Iowa, the first presidential thing. It's, oh. 42, it's 42 degrees below zero, and people have to go out and vote tonight. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's below zero here, you know, and then it's like 20 below with the wind chill. But that's insane. That's, they were sh- showing people were throwing coffee in the air, and before the coffee hit the ground, it would freeze. Wow. It's a, like icicle. That's how bad it is. They were doing that on TV on the networks last night. So I'm glad I'm not out there. Anyway, around March, I'll, we're going to hook up. I'm going to hook up with the Ghetto Blasters, who I've gone on tour with before. They're going to hook up some things in the South and the Midwest, and probably the East will do that. And I like going out with those guys. They're a great band. I get up and do a couple songs from my career with them. And then I, I do a, an acoustic set. And they always hook up something in the daytime for me, like at a bookstore or record store so we'll do like two three gigs a day you know and and do that and i'll just do the ones in a bookstore and that but play a few songs and and uh uh sign books and tell stories and i have fun doing it i love doing it so i'm not surprised we'll it's a, it sounds like the best way to spend a day really and oh um, yeah it's a lot of fun you know you meet a lot of nice people and come to bookstores and record stores and i have i wrote a lot about that in in the in the uh, book too how i enjoy that so much yes so it sounds like you've got a lot of kind of reissues coming out do you know off the top of your head which ones are sort of coming out and which ones are sort of planned for the next couple of years okay the the blue ash um um no more no less and blue vinyl is out now get hip has that you get it anywhere around the world too um the the spanish ones are on you or the cosmos records the blue ash are out like that uh, Get Hip has also um, Dead Be Poets, too, and the albums, uh, vinyl. The Blue Ash, uh, oldies um, thing from Peppermint with the rarities on that will probably come out in the later part of 2024. I just got an email yesterday. They want to have a meeting on it and decide all the final things on it, artwork and everything. So that's going to be out. And um, there will be a blue, a new Blue Ash. Thing. We have nine songs done. We need two more to finish the album, probably by Christmas of this year. And the stuff's fantastic. It's the Deadbeat Poets backing me and Jim on there. But we're all called Blue Ashes because it says it's got great players on it. And um, that's kind of cool. So that's what's happening. There's going to be a lot of stuff coming out, plus the new books. And So you've written got- se- you've written seven new, song- new songs for the album and just got to get two more done before Christmas. Oh yeah, we have nine done already. Okay. Nine new, two more. We have two more that are done too. We just have to get in and record them. And, and does it? And, and and are they sounding good? Yeah, really good. I think it's the best stuff Blue Ash has ever done. Everybody Excellent. I play for go crazy over it. So, so is it you? Who is Blue Ash again? You and Jim. It's me. Jim Kens was the original lead singer, and I was the original bass player. And then it's Debbie Poets, Pete Revere. On, on lead guitar, John Lumick on bass guitar, and uh, John Corey on drums. Blimey. So, and has this been recorded remotely? Have you been able to sort of get together? No, no. We were all in the studio together, but we, we got behind on it during the COVID and everything because things were falling apart. But yeah, we've all done it together. No remote recordings. But uh, yeah, we got two more to do and then just have to mix it. So it, it shouldn't take long. One's an acoustic one, too, so it'll be it'll be kind of easy to do, so. Hopefully we can get that in a couple of months. Well, that's going to be brilliant. Who's who's, produce, who's producing it, by the way? Uh, Pete Revere, 
who's the lead guitar player in the band. It's his studio. He does all the engineering and all the producing. And uh, he was in a band called The Infidels. And and uh, uh, they, it was funny how I met Pete and John. They were teenagers, 16, 17 years old, and they came in the record store where I was working at National Record Mart and plopped down the Disconnected album in $10. And I said, what are you guys, some kind of sickos to buy this kind of crap, you know? They go, oh, they start defending Stib, and they're getting all mad at me, and they're, Stib's great, what, what do you mean, you know? I said, turn the record over, and there's my picture. I go, that's me. <laughs> Oh, wow, that's cool. He goes, we got a band. You got to come and hear us. So I went down to hear him and I, I started managing them and recording and producing him. And now they're producing me. So. God, <laughs> that's that, that's just a holistic love fest, isn't it, really? Just bringing it all yep. together in yeah. one. This is great, actually. <laughs> and on the book front, I know you probably mentioned it earlier, but you've got plans for several more in the next, is it next year and the year after or any this year? Yeah, the, ne- the next couple of years. The first one will be um, the Steve Bader's uh, photo book, which I have a tentative title on it because I wanted always wanted to use it. Uh, Greg Shaw, during the Disconnected album, wanted to call the album Pop Goes the Weasel. And I thought it was hilarious. Steve didn't like it. He kind of took a little offense to it. But I thought it was hilarious. So I think we might call the, the, the book Pop Goes the Weasel. <laughs> so, so when he went into his pop period, because a lot of people turned on him when he went pop from punk, kind of like they did on Dylan when he went to electric, but on a much smaller scale. But a lot of people loved it, too. A lot of people really got into the disconnected the same way with Dylan with the electric stuff. So I always thought that that's, that's a tentative title right now, and that'll be Ter- Teresa Kariakis's photos, and she and I doing anecdotes, and maybe David Quentin Steinberg doing some stories, too. Yes. The next one, a, a history of, of uh, bands in Northeast Ohio in the 60s and 70s. The tentative title I have is Cars, Guitars, Rubber, and Steel, because the main, main <clears throat> products that are produced around here would be automobiles, steel mills, and rubber plants in Akron. So I thought uh, either you worked in a place like that or you were in a band back in the 60s. So that's what my tentative title on that is. So those would be the two next ones, and I'll have to come up with another one after that. But I still have a lot more stories I haven't put into, so maybe there'll be another book of stories too after that. Yes. And were you pleased with uh, Danny Garcia's film on Stiff? Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. Um, uh, they, they've used a lot of really early stuff that nobody had ever seen, like the uh, Mother Goose Band films and all that stuff, and the stuff that Kevin and Bob Keir had from Cleveland. And uh, it, it was nice that he used all that stuff because there was a lot of things nobody had ever seen before. And they had a lot of good people interviewed in it, Eddie Best, uh, uh, Cynthia Ross, just three. Uh, there was just so many. Uh, Jimmy Zero, of course, he was the funniest guy in the movie. And uh, I had tr- I had fun doing that. I did four or five segments in there, too. But they used about six of my songs in there, too, which was good. So Yes. What's your they fondest- set up on Netflix in Europe now, too, so that's kind of cool. Yes, I think that's where I saw it. But yeah, I was I was kind of mesmerized, really. But um, what's your fondest memory of Stiff? Uh, I have I have so many, but my my favorite. And I always talk about it to, to my wife every time we, we were watching TV the other night, and Dick Van Dyke was on there. And um, Dick Van Dyke was such an iconic actor here, and his show in the '60s was the show, Rob Petrie, the Dick Van Dyke show. If you're familiar with that at all, yeah. 
anyway, that, that was the, the one of the main shows in the 60s. So Stib and I went, we were in Hollywood one day and we we're taking our suits to go to the dry cleaners. And we go into the cleaners and we hand them our suits and there's a, a, a kid behind the counter and he has this real star guy look in his face and he's looking over our shoulders, you know. And Stib and I never, we, we met a lot of famous people, but you never really got, you know, goofy-eyed with him and everything. We look back and there's Dick Van Dyke, his, his big smile, you know. Stick Van Dyke, he's in person. So we're kind of wild. We were taken aback. So he drops off his suit and Steve goes, hey, quick, give me a pencil and a paper. I got I got to get his autograph. So we go out to the car and Dick Van Dyke's getting in the in his car. <laughs> and Steve goes, Mr. Van Dyke, he goes, Can I have your autograph? He goes, Oh, sure. So who who do I who do I uh make it to? Stib, S-T-I-V. He goes, he goes, I gotta tell you, Mr. Van Dyke, he goes, this is such an honor for me. He goes, I mean, you won't believe this. He goes, I grew up in Ohio. He goes, and I grew up in an orphanage. And I had to turn away because I was ready to. He never grew up in an orphanage, you know. So I'm kind of turning away, not to laugh. He goes, he goes, and in the orphanage, he goes, the only show they would let us watch once a week, and he's getting teary eyed stiff, was the Dick Van Dyke show. And Dick Van Dyke doesn't know he's having the piss taken out, but he's trying to be real cool, you know. He goes, oh, oh that's nice. He goes, he goes, that was the only sh- show they ever let us watch. He goes, as a matter of fact, he goes, you've inspired me to do what I do today. So Van Dyke, Dyke takes the bait and he goes, well, what do you do? And he goes, I'm a singer in a punk band. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, well, it's nice talking to you guys. Take it easy. He goes, I got to run now. He looks at his watch. <laughs> and, and so he goes away and I start laughing. I said, how could you do that, Steve? How, where do you come up with this shit? An orphanage. He was never an orphanage. He goes, he goes, I was going to ask him, he goes, if he wanted to go out for a drink with us. He goes, and, and at that time, Dick Van Dyke was the head of Alcoholics Anonymous and would do the commercials on TV nationally. Yeah. He goes, but I knew you'd blow it. He said, you'd start laughing. You almost laughed during that orphanage thing. I said, I can't believe you did that. That's one of my fondest memories. And every time we see Dick Van Dyke, because he's such an icon, you yes. know. Yes. In America, I mean, he's still alive. They just gave him an award the other night. He's 99 years old, you know, and he was at the award show making jokes and everything. <laughs> I guess he was, he must have been up there with, was, was Soupy Sells, was he in the same category as, as Dick Van Dyke or was he slightly? Um, no, no, Dick Van Dyke was way more famous. The Dick Van Dyke show from 1960 to 1966 was the top show, TV show in America. It was unbelievable with, uh, with, um, um, Mary Tyler Moore. Oh, of course, Mary Tyler. And then, Mary yeah. Tyler, and then she had her own show after that. But he, that played his wife. And and Carl Reiner wrote it and was in this show, too, uh, who is, um, uh, what's his name, Reiner? Rob Reiner's father. Right. There you go, the okay, famous right. Rob Reiner. Yes. He probably, probably didn't have the Dick Van Dyke show, but, I mean, that was the show, the comedy. It, it was, you know worshipped in this in this country and they're still just taking the piss out of rob petrie that was his name on dixon nice <laughs> God. it just would crack me up but he was just like he was just so funny with that and that dear listener is going to be the end of the interview apart from a casual goodbye that we have at the end talking about show business and also daisy jones and the six and how he was going to get on at the Oscars. But anyway, that's been and gone. A massive thank you, as always, to Frank Sassage for giving me the time for that interview. Um, As I said, member of Blue Ash, but also has got various books out at the moment. I'll give you the links in the notes below. 
titled Not That Way Anymore, which is available, and also Circumstantial Evidence. But anyway, this has been The C86 Show, David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, that's where you've got to go. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.